be very honest and say that I've only seen I've only been to two tapings but they were both incredible and both two of my favorite artists so one was Muna and one was Noah Khan which Noah is currently one of my <laughs> like all-time favorites and he's having like a real moment right now in a way that I don't know that I'll ever see him play a space that size again yep so that might be a very like kind of one-time experience that was just a really, really incredible show. How long have you been a fan of his? I feel like I found him, I don't know, maybe two years ago, like right before his most recent album kind of blew up. Mm -hmm. And then uh, suddenly he was like, started showing up everywhere. And then by the time he went on tour, it was kind of, the irreversible like he yeah. was he he's just kind of continued to get bigger and bigger and he's been touring I feel like for like as long as Harry Styles toured you know <laughs> it's like it just kind of keeps going um but yeah I mean I'm not like he's he's been around for several years longer than I've known of him so I don't want to I won't say I'm like an OG OG fan but but um, you were before he blew up yes yeah that counts yeah What's your favorite show that you've seen? I think it is probably the Avet Brothers, mm -hmm. mainly because, I mean, one, they're incredible. But when I went, Kate and I went together with two of our friends, and I knew the Avet Brothers music, and I liked them, but I'd never seen them live mm -hmm. and didn't have any idea about their onstage energy and presence. Mm -hmm. And it was so much fun. Mm -hmm. I think just to set the stage for people, an ACL taping, which is the best way, in my opinion, to see music. And this is ACL being Austin City Limits. Austin City Limits. Just to really back up for a second. Okay. And Backing up, way back up. Austin City Limits. I don't want to give too much history on it. There's a whole panel. But Austin City Limits um, started as a music show a music recording, like they would come record bands in a small studio on University of Texas campus. Mm -hmm. And it was tiny, but it was big people. The very first one, 50 years ago, uh, was Willie Nelson. Mm -hmm. And they would record these artists doing live shows for a very small audience. And they were very cool. And then they would air on PBS. And then some point, about a decade ago, a mm -hmm. little over, they... Austin made this venue called Moody Theater. We have about a hundred Moody Theater type venues in Austin, so it gets very confusing now. Mm -hmm. But they built this theater. It seats about three thousand people in downtown, and it is beautiful. And so they moved the tapings to there. So Austin City Limits started as this TV show. The music festival license its name from the show. Mm -hmm. So even though the music festival is separate, it's run by a separate company. It's the actual festival is owned by someone else. The name is licensed from the TV show. Yeah. So 
going to a taping, one, it's my favorite venue in town no matter what, but two, going to a taping there is the best music experience because people put their phones away. You people, cannot record. You cannot take photos. You are just fully present. Yep. And there, the venue is small enough that even if you're in the balcony, like you're not that far from the stage and the artist, um, because it is done by either people who sponsor the program, get tickets. There's a lottery system. Fortunately, because we've worked with them so closely for a number of years, we have a dear friend, Emily Joyce Bolf, who has been wonderful to us and helps with partnership things. Um, so sometimes we're able to get tickets to certain shows, but it is just the best experience of going and seeing a music where everyone is fully there to see the music and is very immersed in it. The best listening experience. It sounds great. People aren't chatting. No one's looking on their phones. You're just actually fully there and fully present. And there's nothing like it. Yeah. In a, in a like concert driven music forward city, it is a very one of a kind experience to have in Austin. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so to see people that are about to break through, some people that are really big, Laura, our director of operations, <laughs> got to go to Billie Eilish. And I mean, kicking myself because... Back before she was like was, really Billie it Eilish. Was right before, right before yeah. she kind of like, you with Noah Khan, right before he blew up. Like she saw Billie right before she blew up and like, I didn't know who she was. <laughs> Yeah, And now I'm like kicking myself for it. Um, but then there are people I've gotten to see after they've gotten big. And I've been a fan of for years. Like I saw Florence and the Machine a few years ago. And she had obviously been big for a long time at that point. Um, Kate just went to see Alanis Morissette a yes. little while ago. And that's when she was also in town for the festival. But playing this more intimate show um, yeah. at Austin City Limits. Which is, I mean, to see somebody like that in a space like this is... Again, what makes it so unique? It makes it so cool because even if you're seeing it as like a regular concert, like a paid ticket concert, it's still cool, but you just, you know, you get a different sort of crowd, whereas seeing it as a taping just has a totally different feel. Mm -hmm. So because we're such big fans, because it's an Austin institution and hands down the best way to see music ever, plus not only just the longest running music TV show, it's the longest running TV show. I'm pretty sure. I think so. And uh, so to have as a TV festival, a look behind the scenes at this thing that happens here in Austin on a regular basis was just a conversation we've wanted to have for a while and worked with Emily to really put together what this would look like. Um, Terry Lacona, the executive producer who's been with us since from, from the beginning is just also an Austin institution in himself. Mm -hmm. And is so cool. So to have him spearhead it and have a look at the different, the different main parts of it and how they put it together and what that looks like. I knew that I was really interested in this conversation. The thing I think that really excited me was how interested our audience was mm -hmm. and that it was a full room and people wanted to ask questions and wanted to hear about it in a way that also made me really happy. Yeah. I mean, this is really like a, a behind the scenes conversation in a way that I feel we tend to gravitate towards those in a way that, you know, some other like 
convention and festival settings might not as much, but this was something that we knew as our audience is really like full of process nerds and people who want to know, you know, the, the, I hate the term how the sausage is made, but I guess <laughs> but how the sausage term, is made. Insert other term here yeah. for how the sausage is Less made. gross term, but want, really want to know like the inner workings of, of their favorite shows. And this is that very cool intersection of TV and music that we ha- that we haven't done in this way before. Mm-hmm. And we've had, you know, a lot of music conversations with music supervisors and composers, but this is kind of coming at it in a different way and really like putting that Austin lens on it in a way that was really exciting to us to get to, to do this. And it's the, it was leading into the 50th anniversary of ACL, which is this year, 2024. So, which is like a huge accomplishment. I just can't even imagine how you have something going for that long. Yeah. 50 years of ATX. (laughs) Are we ready? (laughs) Someday. Can you imagine what TV is going to be like in 50 years? Oh, God. <laughs> I just got really tired. <laughs> I mean, I was talking to someone about TV when we started 13 years ago and how House of Cards hadn't even started streaming on Netflix. I know. It feels like bizarro world. Yes. And who knows what's going to happen in the next 50 years. Anyone's guess. We're watching TV on the inside of our like space goggles or something. I don't know. Pretty much. Pretty much. You can actually ACL, you put on your goggles and you're at the concert. When that would you watch be sick. It. I would be into that. I mean, I'm sure that's coming. I mean, I hope so. That's coming for concerts in general, I feel like. If not, what are we doing? <laughs> what's the point? What's the point? If I can't go to a concert without leaving my couch, what's the point? Yep. You can by watching ACL, the mm-hmm. TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's a very cool conversation. Very cool behind the scenes. These people are amazing. Uh, some of them have been with it for a while. Some of them are newer, but they've done a thousand plus tapings. Yeah. I mean, they are to go and see one of these shows happen. It is incredible to see how effortless it seems like the crew is just so in sync with each other and knows like Everyone who has a camera knows exactly where to be and when. They're so good at capturing the sort of unplanned moments mm-hmm. if somebody like jumps on an amp or something and decides <laughs> to, you know, like kind of move around the stage in a in an unexpected way. They know how to capture mm-hmm. that. And it's just they're really good at what they do. Yes. Um and they're in this conversation, the thing that I found most interesting is they really talk about how their archive how the way they make the show has changed over the years just like technically what that how that process has changed and how they really like store um and preserve their archives which is really really interesting and I won't spoil (laughs) how or how or where those archives are um but yeah it's just this this was just so interesting and then yeah it was uh, the first day of the festival, so one of our very first panels of last mm-hmm. year and packed room, and we heard about it from people the rest of the weekend, like how yeah. much fun they had at this panel. So I love it. Yeah. We'll figure out a way to recreate it. Yeah. Not the exact same, but something sim- similar. Yeah. Similar but different. Okay. Well, with that, here is Backstage with Austin City Limits, 50 years of making music in Austin. 
enjoy and then go watch episodes of your favorite bands because it will not disappoint. Yep. Hi, thanks for having us. Pleased to introduce our panel for today. So come on up. Yes. So I'm Sarah Robertson. Thank you for the introduction. We also have Terry Lacona, the executive producer of Austin Sea Limits. <laughs> Jeff Peterson, the another producer for the for Austin Sea Limits. <laughs> David Huff, our audio director. <laughs> Michael Tolan, assistant producer. <laughs> and Liz Antaram. Oh, Liz, I'm so sorry. Anta Ramian, our director of archives. So I want to ask you all a quick question before we start. Who has been to an Austin Sea Limits taping before? Excellent. You, we know you. So glad to see you. This is Amy. We work with Amy on music licensing. <laughs> well, it's great that so many people have been to taping. We will also have time for questions. So if you have questions, there, there will be time at the end. Um, but we're excited because we were told we could be as nerdy as possible on this panel and really get into the weeds, which we don't get an opportunity that often. So hopefully we won't get too into it, but we really are excited to talk about the long legacy of this program and the amazing people who work on this show. So the first question I have for everybody, and you all know this question, how long have you worked on the show? We are in our 49th season right now. Next year will be our 50th season, which is just incredible. Um, but really, the, the longevity of the crew and, and staff are really an amazing asset and what is one of the things that makes this show so special. So, Terry, tell us how long you've been working with the program. Okay, well, not to sound cavalier about it, but sometimes I honestly forget how long it's been. But at last count, this would be my 47th year involved with the show on one level or another. Okay. 44. David? I was there for the pilot in October 1974. Let's give it up for David. Uh, I, I do I, the math for us. Yeah, I, I would be the longest-running sound guy. Yeah. <laughs> Started in season 31, so that's, what, 18 years. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> I have been here since February. <laughs> <laughs> But she is the keeper of the archives, so that counts for some longevity, I think. So, as we said, 49 seasons, about to approach our 50th. We've taped over 1,000. Last season, we, we taped our 1,000th show. One, just think of 1,000 of anything, but especially uh, this amazing production that we do. So, um, did, did you think we'd ever reach 1,000 plus tapings, 50 years? No way. I mean, when we hit 10, we celebrated our 10th anniversary thinking, you know, how could this be possible? And surely it's not going to go much longer than that. 10 years was like it. And then 15 came along, 20, 25, and here we are on the cusp of 50. Well, it is the longest running music program in television history. We are very proud of that fact. In the world. In, in the world. Longest running television program in the world. 
Um, it airs on public media stations all across the United States, but it's also syndicated around the world. So we do have viewers all over the place. We're all, always proud to see Austin City Limits logos on t-shirts and hats um, when we go on vacation and when people send us pictures. Um, so I want to ask also, what, what is the point of the show? What is, it hasn't really changed. It's, it's been very similar since the beginning. So what do you think the point of Austin Sea Limits is. It's to showcase deserving artists. And I think it also is about discovery. It's giving music fans an opportunity to see artists that they wouldn't necessarily have a chance to do otherwise. Obviously we have big names too, but I think that sets us apart from a lot of TV shows um, in that we, we try to capture artists early in their careers, you know, if they're amazing enough. We also try to stay out of the artist way, and we want their intention to be broadcast without our interfering with it. And the Johnny Cash show was a good example of that, where he was used to Nashville-style tapings where they stopped and go and adjusted the lights and just threw off the flow. Once he got past the second song, he relaxed. Of course, the other fact is we tape over the tally lights so the artists don't know which camera is on, so they stop hamming to the camera. Yeah, I, I mean, doing TV in general back then and even today is not really a great experience for most artists or bands, whether it's SNL, late night TV shows. Um, but back in the day when it was basically, uh, what, hee-haw or... <laughs> Midnight Special or some of the earlier music shows so-called on TV. It, and, and even today, like I say, doing SNL, it's not the same as playing to a real audience of, of music fans, if you can even see who they are. And like David says, it's kind of one and done, one song and you're off, or you do the same song over two or three times. So in our case, we give the stage over to the artists, the band, and they do their thing. They do what they do every night and with, with an audience of real music fans. And after like a song or two, even for those who are really nervous about, about doing it, it begins to feel like this is just another show. Only it's our show and it's for posterity. It's not just for that night, for that crowd. They know there's more to it than just that. Michael, I'm gonna ask you to briefly describe what a taping day schedule looks like. Just a couple highlights. Okay. Uh, well, early in the morning, of course, the, the band shows up and loads in uh, the morning is usually reserved for, and Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, for the band setting up on stage. Uh, depending on who it is, that could take hours. That could be brief if it's, you know, Ed Sheeran coming in with his guitar and that's it. Um, uh, and then that's what, lunch? And then you get rehearsal. And uh, if the artist is amenable to it, we do a camera rehearsal. They do their whole show. Our director sits there and takes notes. Terry and Jeff take notes. Uh, David balances the audio. Uh, we just make sure that once showtime happens, you know, obviously anything can happen when a band gets on stage, but we're ready for it, whatever it might be. And, you know, they'll tell us things like, oh, well, during this song, I usually go out into the audience and, you know, kiss babies or whatever it is. And uh, <laughs> that way we know, the director knows, okay, camera, to follow him, uh, and after that, you get the show. I mean, we let in the audience, showtime, 
it's usually great because there's something about the ACL stage that brings out the best in everybody. And I'm not just saying that to promotionally. I've seen bands I've seen a million times play the best shows of their lives on that stage. And then after that, they do an interview, which is now, I'm looking at Emily now, online only usually. Yeah. Um, and uh, then they break we use down a piece and we go of it. We use a piece of it in the show often. And that's a long day, but it goes fast. I mean, you know, I guess for sometimes it feels like real work. But, uh, you know, for, for those of you that have to sit in front of a panel pushing 50 million buttons trying to get everything exactly right, that's probably a little tedious. Well, I mean, but, you know, for the audio team, the hardest working part of the day is just in the morning and, and just around sound check. After that, once everything's dialed in, we just sit back and enjoy the rest of the day. I think one of the highest compliments anyone has ever paid about the show was you almost have to work really hard to make it seem so easy. And you know, there is a lot of truth in that. The idea of creating a natural environment for an artist who maybe most of them are very insecure about doing TV, standing in front of a camera, and worrying about what it's going to look like, how they're going to look, and, and knowing that it's for posterity's sake. And creating that natural environment with, it's not just a matter of being friendly, but being accommodating and making the artists feel like they're really involved in this process. They get to choose which songs they're going to perform that night. They get to choose which songs are going to be included in the PBS edit. They have final approval or the right to go in and remix the music or work with David to remix the music if, if that's what they want to do. So it really, really does make a difference. How many tapings are usually in a, in a season? I'll ask Jeff. About 20. About 20? Yeah. And then that makes how many episodes? 13. So we have some hour-long programs for, you know, bigger bands or somebody that comes in and just blows us away that we didn't really expect. Uh, like Rodrigo y Gabriela, the first time they did the show. Um, Alejandro Escobedo. Alejandro Escobedo, another one. But again, part of the original concept was that each episode would be split between a headliner or a known artist and then somebody who was relatively unknown and emerging act, male, female, singer, songwriter, rock band, or whatever the case may be. And that would be a rare showcase for someone like that who otherwise has a hard, hard time getting on national TV. But yes, if it's the Foo Fighters, forget it. You're not going to cut the Foo Fighters down to 25 minutes <laughs> and fit that into a, a one-hour episode. So there are, I'd say, four, maybe average of four programs each year that, that get the full hour of treatment. So 50 years is a lot of technology. It's a lot of different formats. Um, so I have a pop quiz for you all. And you, you don't know this, except for Liz. She and I worked on this together. So can you name all the different formats that we've used through the decades? I can start it off. <laughs> Two inch. Check. Huge tube-based machines that... Uh, that had spinning heads, and uh, yeah, they were they were something else. They were twenty pound tapes, may I add, as the person who had to move those around a lot. And it's important to not wear a tie around those things. <laughs> okay, two inch. There's there's a couple more. One inch. One inch. Beta. Which one? Which one? Which beta? There's a difference. Beta SP. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Three-quarter inch. Yep. 
D3. Yep. We have a ton of D3s. Yep. And uh, what did we go to? XD cam and HD cam, and now we're fully digital. There's one file, more in there. File based. Umatic. That's three-quarters. That's the same as three-quarters. Now, okay. that, those are just video formats. There is yes. a number of audio formats. I did not do the audio. You want to cover the audio formats? Yes. Audio, the audio, our show is like, there, there's the audio side, there's the video side. It's like they're two separate paths that don't come together until the final edit. And, uh, the, you know, the first couple of years, it, it, it had to stay together because of the technology. But the first uh, 12 years, uh, the, multi the audio was recorded onto a 16-track studer with a 16-channel desk, which when Roy Orbison came in, that wasn't enough. So we, we went to KUT to borrow some extra things. We set those up and put you know, all the percussion and drums and keyboards off in these little sidecars and just to get it down to two channels onto the 16-track. Then 12 years later, we finally got the budget to go up to 24-track. Now we're still analog, reel-to-reel, and uh, we could then not have to stop the band every 30 minutes to change the reels. We could go a whole hour. And that went for about 12 years. And then we went to digital with a new digital console, the digital Pyramix, and then later Pro Tools came in. And then when we moved to the Moody Theater here, Avid came in and provided all the Pro Tools and the console. And we've moved on from there. One of the most remarkable things, though, down through the years, is that we have preserved all of the original primary recordings of the entire broadcast on video as well as on audio, multi-track. One of the unfortunate things is that after X number of years, these tapes begin to disintegrate, as, as David and Michael can tell you, and there are certain tricks that they have to resort to to restore those tapes or be able to play back, especially some of the audio tapes. But these are like not just three or four songs or five songs of B.B. King. It's his entire show at that point in time in 1981, what B.B. King and his band were doing at that point in time in his long career. So that really, I think, adds so much, as Liz can say, to the historical value of what we have been doing and capturing for all of these years. David, tell us about baking tapes and how you... How you did that? Well, once again, KUT stepped up because they had uh, the article from a magazine that I got a copy of. So I went straight away to the hardware store, got a, uh, a meat thermometer and a hair dryer and a cardboard box. And you prop it up with a couple of sticks and you get to the right temperature and you run it all night. And I remember having to bake the Roy Orbison tapes. Just, and it, it took two days. Well, Liz, why don't you talk a little bit more about the um, digitization process and our preservation of the archive? I would love to. Um, so just to revamp, um, I am the director of archives, and we have over 1,500,000 assets um, that require a lot of information that goes to each one of them. Um, so part of my job is to take the steps from digitization and make it such that it's discoverable. So a lot of, I'm very, very fortunate to be part of a team that has people from the very beginning. It is a preservation dream um, to be able to ask those questions and be able to put that information into each piece of um, media that gets preserved. 
Um, so as David was talking about baking, um, who's familiar with the concept of baking? Like not baking a cake, but <laughs> there's a couple different ways you can define that. Yes. But uh, <laughs> baking the tapes. Yes, right. baking the tape. Um, so as you can imagine, who's ever used, who's ever heard of Betamax? Okay, good amount of you. Um, but some of you have never heard of it before. So part of it and why it's so important to digitize everything is that these are systems that were great at the time, but have since become obsolete. Um, so our job is to not only digitize and preserve, but to make it in such a way that, especially with you know, a major milestone coming up, if people have questions, to make it discoverable. Um, so Terry can talk a lot about the history of the piano, for example, and if there's questions that come up about the piano, um, we're able to quickly run a query to get all those, um, all those questions answered immediately. So where are those assets currently? They are um, stored in a now defunct salt mine. And why is that? Right. Tell us more. Tell us more. Why? Why a salt mine? Why not? Why not our closet in the basement of yeah. the building? Um, it's not because that the tapes need flavor, <laughs> um, but it's because it provides the best atmosphere. Um, humidity is not our friend in the archival world, um, and if you're from Austin, uh, you're very familiar with the heat and humidity. So we don't ever want to put our assets in immediate danger where they can expedite the decay process. So having it in an underground salt mine is ideal because it is a very dry, um, naturally climate controlled environment. Plus no one can find it. <laughs> so along with um, the video and audio recordings, what are the other things that we save from tapings in, in different seasons? I love answering this question. Uh, so as an archivist, um, a lot of what we work on is not only the media, um, which also includes photographs, which we, we and by we, I mean me, um, I get to look at the entire archive of photos that have ever been taken. Um, but in addition to that, we have a lot of manuscripts, um, which are loose documents. And part of my job is to organize it in such a way that makes sense. So it can be correspondences for a particular taping, um, for a special, for a series, and I get the lovely job of putting it together such that when researchers come in, um, or if the team comes in with questions, we're able to quickly find that information. Um, so it also involves a lot of the awards, because um, you can imagine a show that has been uh, persevering and thriving for almost 50 years have won quite a bit of awards. Um, we also have a lot of posters. Who's ever bought a poster from an ACL taping? Yeah, you know how quickly those sell out. Um, and we also have um, some of the other marketing materials, um, t-shirts, patches, um, and even pieces of the stage from the original studio. Um, what else but about set lists or schedules? There's a lot of material that's, um, that, that comes out of a taping. So do we keep hard copies of those or is it digitally yes. archived? So the nice thing is most everything now has been digitized or is just being born digital. 
um, which makes my life a lot easier. But yes, so we have a lot of the production notes, um, which were very well organized in binders, which I appreciate. Um, so set lists, um, stage plots is another big one. Um, people kind of take this information for granted, but the fact that it's been recorded um, is to me, again, is a, just a preservation dream because people do come up with very interesting questions of where was Lloyd Maine standing for X taping? Um, and we'll be able to answer that question. Have we ever made an effort to preserve the director's handwritten camera shot sheets that yes. are used for every show? Yeah. Yes. We're also archiving Probably all your emails. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you, anybody would like to add about things from the past tapings that have surprised you as far as uh, things that we've saved or archived? Nancy Griffith's dress the first time she appeared that she made, especially for the taping. And so we, we saved it or we well, archived we it? Do. She gave it to us. It's actually yeah, in the archive yeah. um, with her shoes. So if you had a dream, one more archive question. If you had a dream for the archive and access of it, what, 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 what would that look like? That is a great question. Ray Charles' glasses would be <laughs> nice maybe, but no, he, mm -hmm. he took them with him. Yeah, I think um, my dream, of course, any archivist's dream is to have a space as big as this room, if not bigger. Um, but I... To me, my dream is to just make sure that I'm doing everything in my part to preserve all of the hard work of the people standing or sitting next to me that are up on this stage. Well, it was a big commitment of the station. Um, as I mentioned, we're a nonprofit, non-commercial media station. So to have an asset like Austin City Limits, it, it did take a lot of effort to, to save everything because we, we do like to reuse stuff and be thrifty. So it did take past us and current and future us to, to make an effort to do this. So anything else that you, you wish we could have done differently in the past around saving, saving the past uh, tapings or materials that were produced? Or did we do a good job? I wish from the beginning we had uh, saved the unedited uh, recordings uh, because the first two years, three years, two, first two years we didn't do that. And there's some priceless stuff that we only have the edited master of. But, I, you know, Towns Van Zandt being the top one for me, I dearly wish we had that whole show because he was sober and played the best show, best film show he'd ever done. And I've heard that from multiple sources. But we still have the original audio, correct? Yes. Those two yes. Years, first yes, two. we do have the multi-track. Well, the, actually, the multi-tracks were recycled. Year one was erased over for year two. Year two is erased over for year three, with only two exceptions that Bill Arhos determined, like the Texas Playboys and Willie or I. The Willie Pilot, know, yeah. If, if I'm not even sure where those ended up, but the, the issues that Bill was up against those first two years was just to get, in, you know, any of the show out the door because there was zero money. And uh, we did the pilot with Willie Nelson, sent that to PBS, and they said, well, that's very nice. Can you send us 10 more like that? And you did. I think the first season was um, 
basically paid for with a $50,000 grant from the Lone Star Brewing Company, actually. And at the time, I think we also paid Willie Nelson $50 uh, talent scale. That was his fee to perform. But uh, I'm happy to say after 50 years, that talent fee has gone up to almost $600. So we are, I mean, I joke, but seriously, nobody, of course, does it for the money or even asks these days. Everyone gets paid based on the same scale with the American Federation of Musicians. And um, it's a great thing. Another great thing about being a nonprofit, not having to negotiate such things, talent fees, and deal with those kinds of commercial rights. Something to add, Michael? I was just going to mention, along with that very small talent fee, our contract. Many of you here, I'm sure, have written contracts or have to read contracts. It was a page, and it didn't even take up the whole page. <laughs> it was a simpler time back then. I mean, I mean, we basically had to borrow a lot of material. I mean, Malcolm Harper loaned us what we needed to do the pilot, as far as audio goes. The cameras came down the hall from a children's bilingual television show that was being produced that had, had funding, and we took their lights. Explain the monitors and what happened. Uh, I'd rather not go into that. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 was, it was, I mean, we had, uh, we had a machine, we, we had a, a, a scene shop in the basement that could build anything. And it was, de it was determined that uh, we wouldn't buy speakers, we would build them. And, we would, and it was determined that the speakers would come from Radio Shack from across the street. And when uh, Bobby Nelson was sitting at her piano, she looked down to see smoke coming out of the speaker. <laughs> uh, frantic phone calls were made and Jerry Potter's brother showed up with his PA. And so that was the original home of Austin Sea Limits, which was located on the University of Texas campus in historic Studio 6A. And 13 years ago, we moved downtown to ACL Live at the Moody Theater. And we had the opportunity to design and build the studio there. So Jeff, tell us a little bit about that process and what it was like moving from that, from uh, it, it's historic in many, many ways. <laughs> to being able to build a, a brand new facility, and what did you want to carry over? It was kind of scary, but Jeff, to his credit, had a lot to do with that design. So the whole goal was to try to replicate as best we could the look and feel of the original studio, but, but expand the audience. Um, and so basically, it's, it's roughly the same footprint as far as the floor goes, but there's two additional levels that go up. Um, one of the things we, tr we wanted to do was wrap the audience around the stage like we had in the original uh, studio. We were, uh, we were really lucky that the developer and the theater consultants, uh, even more than us sometimes, wanted to uh, match what we had before. Um, the stage, we have a new stage, but it's modeled on the old one, and, uh, you know, we, uh, we, did, we did bring over the original branch that was hanging in the studio that we would roll a camera by, and uh, because of the new space, it didn't work out that way well, so we jettisoned it. But uh, we also uh, 
had to build a, 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 a backdrop. The original studio had a huge uh, wall to wall and then it wrapped around somewhat uh, backdrop with the city skyline. So we, we had to design and build a new one that felt like the old one, used the original colors and all of the original positions and shapes of the buildings. But then we had, it's Austin, we had to add a bunch of buildings. We, we have to go back now at some point and add more. That's 13 years out of date by now. So there are how many new buildings have gone up in, in the past 13 years? And acoustically though, you and David could both speak to that. Yeah, we had uh, Stephen Dewar designs for the acoustical consultant. He did a brilliant job in uh, bringing in things like floating slabs of all things. Our old studio had a floor that if, if the audience started bouncing to the tempo, the floor would sort of start singing along with it. And uh, so the cameras have to have a perfectly flat surface. And the way that was constructed in the, in the Moody was brilliant. And it also is a floating slab, so that whatever vibrations hit that don't travel across the concrete to any other space. The and vice versa. And vice versa. The, the audio control room is on a floating slab. So if somebody's walking down the hallway in their high heels, clonk, 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 we don't hear that in the room. Uh, acoustically, the space is uh, a little more dry than what most... Um, concert spaces are. The original studio was dead silent and dry. It was just a sound stage. We didn't even have restrooms for the, for, the, for, the, for the crowd. They had to go back on the elevator and go down. Now we've got not only, you know, a dozen restrooms for the crowd, we've got 10,000 bars. Those go hand in hand, by the way. <laughs> it's the input-output, yeah. So, you know, Television, the visual side of the show is obviously very important. And as we said, we've, we've uh, learned a lot of different formats over the years. But of course, audio is equally important. So I'd like to hear you all talk a little bit about how you keep that audio quality so high. We have really good equipment. Mm -hmm. And good people. Yeah, and that goes back to the very first year, uh, primarily because... Uh, B. Morgan Martin, who was the main audio engineer back then, uh, knew of this company that I had never heard of called Neve. And he was able to talk, uh, even though we had limited budget, limited money, he was able to, to raise $35,000 to buy a 16-channel Neve and a 16-channel Studer, which, have, which at, the, at the time in 1975 was the top-of-the-line equipment and had the astounding astounding audio quality. So from year one onward, we've always have had that. Our microphone selection is such that it's steered toward live performance, not so much that you would see in a recording studio format, because we have monitors and speakers and all of this, and the microphones that we chose are sure microphones that are classic for live like recordings. Like these. Like this one we're talking into. Uh, and Shure has been around forever, and we still use those. And now there are other manufacturers that have come out with other high-end microphones as well. So the microphones have pretty much stayed the same, and the equipment is always the top of the line. But remember, back in 1975, the 
typical sound that came out of a TV was horrible, a little five-inch speaker. And especially music on television back then and for many, many, many years after that, it was just atrocious. So, but nonetheless, again, maybe thinking about posterity or just because we were, you know, we wanted everything to look and sound right. We even had arrangements with a number of radio stations around the country. This is back in the 70s into the 80s. Mostly public radio stations, some commercial, which would simulcast our Austin City Limits programs when they aired on the local PBS station. That was a pretty unique arrangement back in the day. But so a real audiophile music freak could literally listen to it the way it was recorded and the way it was intended to be heard while watching the show on their little 12-inch TV. So you mixed the program in 5-1 now. Well, yeah, we started in mono. Mm -hmm. And season five, I think, when Alan Muir first came on board to direct the show, uh, we finally had the equipment to be able to go up to stereo. And I was just looking over some notes. Uh, the year, I believe it was, when was it season 20 or whatever, when Stevie Ray Vaughan did his second show, we were given equipment from Dolby to do surround uh, as a ProLogic one, which is still kind of encoded into a stereo channel. And Stevie came in to do the mix in the control room with us. So that was our first endeavor in surround. And then by the time we got to digital, then we got to the, uh, the Dolby E and such as that. Now we're discrete 5.1 surround. Uh, the new broadcast standards are now uh, set up to where eventually we could get into immersive Atmos. It's not currently on my <laughs> bucket list, but our new console, which is an SSL, is capable of now panning up into the ceiling. And so, yeah, the ceiling speakers are the addition that makes it immersive. Yes. What else about the production itself? Uh, how many cameras do we use now? Jeff, seven. We have uh, we we're really lucky that way because it is a television show as opposed to a concert where you have to avoid blocking sight lines and so on. So we have a bunch of cameras right up around the stage. Um, I don't know how far into the weeds you want us to get. Do but, it. Okay. We have uh, two pedestal cameras and two jib cameras that the pedestal cameras kind of work the, 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 the middle of the stage, of the front of the stage. The jibs, one on either corner, um, are able to get some height. Then we have two handheld cameras. Um, those work the back of the stage or sometimes one of them comes around to the very center in front of the stage. Uh, we also have a track camera, which was, it's pr pretty, it was pretty difficult. The process is difficult. And the, um, the upkeep of it is difficult, but it's super important because it works the, the back balcony rail and is able to get these trucking shots that you wouldn't be able to get any other way. And it stays out of people's sight lines from the back. Uh, and we also have either one or two 
rovers, we call them, that go around shooting the audience. The, the main cameras also shoot the audience between songs, but these cameras are dedicated to the audience. You know, I think it's, on this note, so important to talk about creatively how the show looks. And this is a credit largely to Gary Bonatti, our director, has been director since season seven. What is it about Austin City Limits that makes people want to watch the show week after week, year after year? What makes it about the show that an artist, three generations now of artists, have wanted to do the show and it's been on their bucket list? It's the way the show looks. And by that, I mean, as opposed to a lot of music on TV, whether it's late night TV or like the Grammys, where it seems like the director or the lighting people are sometimes just trying to show off. You know, if they linger on a shot for more than two seconds, then you think there's something wrong. Um, the camera shots are just constantly cutting from singer to, to somebody else or from three, three different angles. The way Gary directs and the way our shows look, you get almost like absorbed into the music. A shot will linger on a singer who's singing an, an emotional, powerful verse or a guitarist who's just like so caught up in his, his or her solo. And that's what makes the show different. It's not only for a music nerd or for fellow musicians, but it really makes you feel like you're a part of the show. The next best thing may be better than actually being at a concert. And it makes it a lot better to, to, to really appreciate the music, the song and the people who are playing the music behind them. I think that's an important difference that doesn't always get talked about or maybe isn't even noticed by a lot of people, but you feel it. If you watch the show, you know what I mean. The other thing that I alert along those lines that I alluded to earlier, our cameras are up at the stage, which means their uh, the, 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 uh, lenses are wide angle, which means depth is accentuated, and it, it really makes you feel like you're there. And again, people probably don't think about it, but it does pull you in. And another aspect is the audience itself. And there's this feedback loop between how the crowd responds to the band and the band responds to the crowd. And it just builds and spirals up into this magical thing. So now we have, thank you for listing all the different cameras. Um, and up until about, I think 18 years ago, we were using a special piece of equipment called a crane camera. So Michael or Liz, do you, are you wanting, could, could you tell a little bit of the story of the crane camera and, and, and where it is now? We got the crane camera. And just describe it a little bit. Uh, what, well, what is a crane camera? It took uh, six people to run, if I recall correctly. Um, and it's, a, it was a little truck with a giant crane and a camera on the end of it. There's a guy sitting there on the, at the end of the crane and basically six people moving it around and, and moving the crane back and forth. Uh, well, we found out, we got that thing from auction, uh, I think right before ACL started going into production, we found out that crane was used on the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, talk about built to last. The thing was already 40 plus years old, maybe older before we even got it. And we used it up until we moved to the Moody. So. It looked like it had... The Eiffel Tower technology, is, the way it was riveted together. Yes. That's why it took six people to operate. Right. So, but what is, where is it now? Because we couldn't save it. It took up a it, lot of space. It's at, uh, at the Americana Music Association's museum in Nashville. 
And I think the other tidbit, especially here in this room, the, <laughs> it was going to be really expensive to ship it to Nashville. So we worked with the reality program Shipping Wars. <laughs> and it's an episode. So we, it became an episode of Shipping Wars, and that's how it, um, it got to Nashville. So thanks, Megalomedia <laughs> and Shipping there Wars. There were two steering wheels, two, two yes. drivers. Yeah. It was a beast. All electric? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. No cables. Yeah, so there was somebody, yeah. So I think one of my first memories of, of a taping there probably 18 years ago is that crane camera and then seeing the branch that was attached to the back of the seating. So I recently heard of a story about a famous beetle who learned about the branch. I'm, I'm trying to tee somebody up to tell the rest of the story. So I think you told me the story. Who? Do you know? Uh, yeah, uh, Jody Denberg, good friend of ours who has... I'm sure most of you know if you live in Austin, especially as the DJ on KUTX. And uh, he was doing an interview with Paul McCartney some years ago and talking about Austin and the Austin music scene. And Jody, to his credit, I think suggested to Paul that he ought to consider someday doing the Austin City <laughs> Limits music show. And yes, he was, he was very familiar with it. In fact, he made some reference or joke about the fact that uh, that's, that's that show that's filmed in a park somewhere in Austin. <laughs> And really, especially in the original studio, for whatever reason, maybe partly because it was low-resolution TV back then, too, but it looked like it really was outside. And if you thought about it, though, a park where it never rained, the wind <laughs> never blew, it was never hot, never too cold, and just perfect. And, uh, and with the Austin skyline glistening in the, in the background, people really believed it. Paul, Paul Simon was another one. When he finally came to do the show at our new place, the Moody downtown, Looking at it during rehearsal, you know, I had wondered if Paul was even that familiar with the show, but as soon as he walked into the studio, he stood out front and looked at it and said, yeah, you know, for years and years, I used to think it was outside. So we there fooled were a lot PB of people. There were some PBS programmers who thought it was filmed outside. Have you visited Austin? It's, I would, it would be really hard to tape that program outside on, in the best of days. Somebody once wrote and asked if we had uh, hookups for RVs if for someone who wanted to come to the show. Had to really disappoint them. <laughs> what a concept, though. Yeah. Just imagine. So the branch is now on display at the Bullock Museum. So they have an Austin Sea Limits exhibit there. So you're you're welcome to go and see some of these these items, including the famous branch. So go visit it and say hello from us. Which was picked up off the ground somewhere on the UT campus years and years ago. Brought into the studio and hung up by wires. Re really. Yep. Plastic leaves were glued to it. Yes. <laughs> Somebody had the job. Somebody on the crew had the job of gluing those leaves. Now, the, 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 uh, the foliage that was on the back of the stage in the old studio, uh, you know, was plastic toward the end. But the, it started off as they were, rent, they were live plants that were rented and brought in. And that's how the crickets hitched a ride. Oh. And they ended up taking over the... the uh, I thought you added those cricket sounds in the mix. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, always, yes. I always get, you know, I want to mic that. Yeah, I need that cricket sound. You know, when there's dead air, you got to fill it with something. Crickets. So we have some time for questions. And where is the microphone? Oh, I have the microphone. So is there a particular spot you'd like people to stand? I'll hand it to you if you have a question. So come on down. In the meanwhile, 
I want to ask everybody your, your most memorable taping. I know it's a hard one. You have thousands, thousands to choose from. So, so we'll go down the line. And if, if anybody has a question, come on up and I'll hand you the microphone. So Terry. No, let's start at that end. Oh, Liz. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, the one, well, I used to watch Austin City Limits on TV all the way in little old southeastern Wisconsin at 11 o'clock at night on Fridays. Um, but I had the opportunity to kind of see from start to finish the taping of Muna, uh, and I was just blown away by it. Uh, I, I also actually have to say it was my first taping. It was Dr. John in 90, late 91, early 92. That was, I what, didn't even work at the show or at the station yet. I had no idea I would be in the position I'm in now when I saw that show. I'm going to talk about a, uh, a taping that was done that was a tribute to Stevie Ray Vaughan. It, it was not, it didn't end up as an Austin City Limits, but it was our same crew and same studio. And it was in my experience, the first time to have on the stage at the same time, it was B.B. Uh, King, Dr. John, Bonnie Raitt. Um, oh, help me out here. What's Eric Robert Clapton. Ray. Eric Clapton, yes. Jimmy Vaughn. Jimmy Vaughn. And uh, to, label, to label the console, back then we still used tape and pencil marks, and I'm going, oh, my gosh, here's B.B. King's amp and, and Jimmy Vaughn's and, and, and uh, uh, Robert Cray's. How am I, you know, how is this possibly going to get, isn't it just going to mash up into one thing? And then sound check, I just kind of panned them, ding, 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 like that. And they all had their own separate characters and tones, and I didn't have to do anything as far as equalization or any of that. And the band was trying to decide what song do we know that every, you know, what Stevie Ray Vaughan song that do we all know that we can do? And they went around and went around, couldn't, couldn't, and they said, oh, uh, screw it, let's just play 12 Bar Blues. <laughs> and that song went on to win a Grammy. I mean, it's almost impossible to pick one taping. Um, due to peer pressure, I guess I'll, I'll do that. Um, probably the second time Stevie Ray did the show. He was sober. It was kind of homecoming for him, and both of his shows were amazing, but the second time, the first time, there might have been some illicit substances involved, and there's a lot of tension in the air, but the second time he did the shows, it was amazing, but I, I mean, I've got 20 or 30 I could reel off if I had the time. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible. It gets real personal for me, having been involved for so long, but like, the first show I booked in my first year as producer, and it was really a step away departure from what the show, where, the, where the show had begun as a Texas progressive country music show, was Tom Waits. So Tom Waits, Willie, they're both incredible. They're geniuses in their own way, but Tom Waits was a big stretch at the time. And I was so proud and frankly scared about doing the show with him. But I tend to pick the shows that are in my in the most recent season or last year or two. I mean, it's been more than a couple of years, but the Kendrick Lamar show was just fucking awesome, just unbelievable. And a couple of years ago when John Batiste came to do a show, it was one of those few shows where I really still get goosebumps during the show and even looking back at it, I watched it time and time again. 
he was just such an incredible and, and spiritual um, artist out on our stage. So I tend to look back not that far into the past because when you do, then you get into Ray Charles territory and B.B. King and Roy Orbison and on and on and on. Yes. Uh, okay, I think I have two unrelated questions. Uh, the first is I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about booking and how it's decided which artists go on. Uh, and then second, I live in Austin, uh, and I have often had trouble kind of wrapping my mind around what does and does not count as part of the ACL brand. Like, I understand that the festival is a separate thing, and I'm sort of interested to know how they came to use your name. I also have seen many shows at the movie theater that don't appear to be being taped for the show at all. And so I'm not sure like how to reconcile that. Those are like 12 questions, I think. <laughs> very good, very good questions. Okay, well, starting out with the booking and I'll try to keep it short. I mean, ultimately I'm responsible for booking the shows, but it's a process that involves my whole team of producers and frankly, everybody who has an idea or a suggestion, including my neighbors or plumber or <laughs> friends of friends, I get it from everywhere and sometimes they're the best ideas yet. And starting out as, as I say, a Texas country music show and now anything goes, whether it's Texas country or hip hop or blues or jazz or Latin music is such a big thing today too, that, um, and this year we're even doing a show with the Austin Symphony Orchestra, a little bit of a, step into the classical world. So um, really, it's, it's a very eclectic process and a, a delicate balancing act to come up with just the right mix that makes Austin City Limits so unique. And it is unique because what other music series on TV could get away with doing such a variety of music as opposed to like sticking with one, one genre all the time? You Jeff, do you want to explain ACL, the brand? And, sure, and go for it. Good luck. And the festival? And oh, yes. <laughs> That's the most difficult uh, answer or question so far. Um, well, let's start with ACL Live at the Moody Theater. Um, they, it's a, it's a year-round concert venue as well as being our home. So you can go to ticketed shows and see whoever they're booking. Um, only about 20 times a year do we tape it? And then it's completely ours and they don't really have much to, to, to do with it. Um, and then to, to make things even more confusing, there's now three Moody, Moody's in town, the theater, the amphitheater, and the center. So it's kind of crazy. We also have ACL Radio, um, which is a commercial station here, KGSR. And then, of course, there's the festival, which uh, is the longest-running co-brand um, of all of them. Um, and uh, there was a, a company called Capital Sports and Entertainment back in whatever year that was. Um, they were, I, I, at, the, at the time, really more of a sports agency. They had Lance Armstrong, um, and they came to the station. They wanted to, to do a, uh, a, a festival. And they thought if they joined with us, they would have name recognition from day one. So we, we partnered with them, and that's how, that's how the festival came about. There's not, 
we meet with those people. We know all of them. Um, they help us. They help tell us who's coming to town because they're the 800-pound gorilla. They're really live nation now. And so they book the Moody Center, the arena, the new arena. And so they've got all these bands coming in town. Um, and sometimes we can piggyback. Um, but, but there's really no direct relationship. It's a, it's a licensing deal, basically. It's always, Is that it? It's always complicated when you mix for-profit and non-profit. And that, there's a lot of that going on here. Michael, tell, tell everybody how they can find out about tapings, and then we'll ask the next question. <laughs> go to acltv.com. <laughs> uh, and also, I have, even better, go to the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. That's where you get it immediately. So, Brent Allen, Terry, coming on. I've uh, known each other for uh, quite a while. I'm a local Austin musician, been around here forever. One of the panels that I wanted to come to was this one just as an Austin musician, just to come up here and say, thank you for you guys, for everything that you do. I didn't, wasn't looking for an applause. I just know that I got a tattoo on my birthday last year. That's the Grand Old Opry stage. So for a musician, playing the ACL show would be just the same as playing the Grand Old Opry or the Red Rocks Theater. So much props to you guys as, just, as a musician for doing everything you've been doing for years. I've been seeing every show. Dale Watson is a friend of mine. So the coolest part about at my question is actually I know Kevin Russell and I know, you know Dale Watson. I watched the one with uh, with uh, with Kevin, and I remember that lighted coat he had. So I'm like, how could you possibly film that? Because he's just got all those dancers all over the place. But I remember Dale Watson made a specific request. He wanted a dance floor. So you guys having to do your handheld cameras and being the first time that you've ever done that, that had been really really complicated. But I heard that Dale wouldn't do it without a dance floor. Well, that wasn't really the first time we had a dance floor. We'd done well, it before. You're right, sure. You're, yeah, not so that was the one I remember yeah, the most. Not so much saw. at the Moody Theater, ironically, but we had a dance floor on quite a few shows back up in Studio 6A on the UT campus. But your point, uh, Brent, was really, uh, I appreciate you making that comment about supporting local musicians and bands because that has been an important part of ACL's story and mission from day one is to support Austin music, to give Austin bands and artists a showcase, just like everybody else who does the show, for the rest of the country and the world to, to, to watch and to, to discover on their own. And that still is an important part of our mission every year, part of the mix. And that Dale show was really good. Dale. The Dale show was really, really good. I have a two-part question. They're very much not connected at all, but the first one is... One of you mind sharing the story of how London Homesick Blues came to be the closing song? No, actually, I wasn't here. I was not part of the show when it was chosen. Well, Michael could probably tell us. You know, don't look at me. Okay, David, you were there. I was there. Let me see if I can remember this. It was okay. The first couple of the years when Paul Bosner was the producer. We almost had a house band that was consisted of Gary P. Nunn, Bobby Bridger, uh, the Los Gonzo Band, Bob Livingston, uh, a number of, you know, a core of Austin musicians. And um, I think Mike Tolan was the kind of, he had the Rolodex of musicians that we were using the first couple of years. Uh, but 
I believe it was Jerry Jeff Walker that had the Los Gonzo band and they did a version, uh, but it was Gary P. Nunn that was singing the song, uh, sitting at the piano. And uh, I, it's starting to come back to me now. The, uh, uh, the director of the show was down from Dallas, uh, uh, Bruce, Sat with Scaife. Bruce Gave sat with me, and and he wanted to pick a particular part of that one song about the homes, about the Lennon Homesick Blues because it referred to the Armadillo World Headquarters and other things. And I didn't really know the history of the song. I didn't know that it was written in England, and the story behind it. I do now, but it, it just was like we were working with quarter inch tape with razor blades to get the fade up just right. And once we got that set in there, we just kept using it year after year after year. And we would be continuing to use it today if Gary P hadn't changed management. Long story. Yeah. My second question was in regards to the archives. I know that the shows can't be made available for free because of licensing and other things like that. But the other documentation and things like that, like you're talking about the uh, layout of the, where the bands were and the set list and all like that, is that something that could be maybe put on the website somewhere and made available to the public at some point? That's a really great question um, that I don't have an answer to at this time. Um, however... Um, there are some records that are considered um, open, so once they get processed, and then we have the system of having like the finding aid available, um, you know, people who want to come in and do research would be able to come in and look at that. Um, so the hope is, and kind of going back to Sarah's question of my dream, is you know if we have the licensing available to do it. Um, to be able to have an online exhibit so people can interact and see that, you know, 24-7, 365. Because as much as I'm passionate about archives, I don't really want to be answering your question at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Oh. I guess this is where the archive is. So having seen a Lyle Lovett show recently where his trombone player shot the, the end of his trombone off, I was wondering, do you have any more outtakes and do you have enough to make like a blooper show? <laughs> that is another great question. Um, a blooper reel might already exist. Um, more than bit, one. Yeah, more than one. Um, that's what I really love about my job. Um, but to kind of cue into uh, Lyle Lovett, um, I love what, you know, our staff does. Um, and for Lyle Lovett's first taping, um, he was actually, if you watch closely, if you can, um, if you remember, he was actually an audience member to his own taping due to the magic of TV. Went to a lot of tapings before he ever got the chance to get on stage himself. So Gary and Dan uh, played a little trick on him. How many times has he taped? He's one of the, the most taped artists. Uh, Fourteen times, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Willie is you ahead know. of him by one. Mm -hmm. And I would point out Lloyd Maines has been a side man probably more than any others next to. He Johnny holds Gimble. the record. Yes, correct. Uh, there were a, a few years early on where we just for fun would put together a blooper reel at the end of the season for like a party at my house or something. And we stopped doing it because it was work and, you know, it took time, editing time. 
and so forth. But I kind of wish we had kept doing it. And if we went back, to, I don't know how long it would take to look through so many years to find those precious little moments. So let's talk about this season. And, and, and if there's any last questions, we have maybe time for one more. But what, what can we look to for season 49? Well, most people ask me, what are you doing for the 50th anniversary? And my pat response is, let me get through season 49, all of us first. And then we can talk about 50. Yes, we are planning very much so, thinking a lot about our 50th anniversary. But we're into our season 49 production and basically we've only done two shows so far, which means we have about another 18 to go through October. And um, I'll be honest, it's, it's been a tough season. As you may have noticed, everything in the world today seems a little more complicated, expensive, just, just more difficult than it used to be after COVID. And uh, it has especially impacted the music world and the touring industry and people who make a living off the road playing music or people who make a living from uh, operating music venues, doing TV shows, et cetera. It's, it's been tough. There's been a lot of competition, people trying to make up for lost time, lost money from these past two to three years including our own venue here in Austin, which was virtually shut down. And tours are so much more expensive. And last year, so many shows had to be canceled due to COVID, and some still are being, not so much anymore, thank God. So, but it's, it's made it more difficult trying to sync up our schedule, our taping schedule, with the schedules of certain artists. And without naming names, I think I've probably lost out on five or six opportunities to, to book shows with, uh, with talent because of schedule problems or because, honestly, sometimes they can't afford to take a day off from their tour to come and do our show for $600 or whatever, as much as they love it and respect it. Um, so it's become a, um, it's become a more tricky than, than usual, but when all is said and done, I know we'll end up with an amazing season this year. And looking at it from the bright side, it opens up the opportunity to do some shows with maybe some you know, less mainstream type acts, but those types of artists who have made Austin City Limits what it is all of these years. So um, stay tuned. You'll get to find out for yourselves in a few months. And when the announcements are made, they're on the website and the newsletter. Um, but can you give us a couple names? Who are we taping next? Our next taping, and this is a good example of how ACL has changed over the years, is going to be on June 28 with Lil Yachty coming from the hip-hop slash pop slash whatever other genre you want to mix in with what, what his sound is. And then the next show after that is going to be the one that I briefly mentioned with the Austin Symphony and Rodrigo y Gabriela, two incredible guitarists who have done the show once seven or eight years ago. This will be the first time we've ever done a collaboration with the Austin Symphony. We had a big meeting with them earlier today. They're thrilled about this, this opportunity, as are we. So that's going to be a super cool show. And then we have like five or six tapings in July, another four or so in August into September when the pace starts to pick up. We will be taping some shows around ACL Fest, including a headliner or two. I can't say who yet because we haven't announced. But uh, that's a, kind of a sneak peek, at least at the next couple of shows coming. We will be very busy in July and October, just to let you know. Every year is different. Some years we start off with a bang, and the tapings are front-loaded in the spring, and other years, summers tend to be quiet or not. This is one of those years when the summer is going to be 
real busy, but the good news is we get to stay inside a nice, cool venue in downtown Austin as opposed to a park somewhere outside. Not outdoors. Well, thank you all very much. This has been fascinating, and thank you all very much. And we hope to see you at a taping. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced by Jennifer Morgan. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 12 in Austin, Texas, between June 1st and 4th, 2023. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.